welcome back to Philosophy Around Us, the podcast where we discuss how philosophy relates to different school subjects and therefore the role it plays in our world. The subject which we will be discussing today is English, or English literature to be put precisely, and doing so with me, we have my friend Loretta, who is incredibly passionate and knowledgeable about the study of English. Welcome, oh, Loretta. Oh wow, what an introduction. Hello. <laughs> how are you doing? I'm good, how are you? I'm good. We're really excited to have you here. Oh, thank you. I'm excited to be here. I literally, after listening to the first session, I was like writing down notes like, oh my God, what can I say about this? So I was just <laughs> so interested. Awesome. So let's just kind of jump right in. Mm-hmm. Do you think philosophy relates to English or how do you think it relates if it does? I think they're massively linked, inherently linked even. Um, I mean, I think philosophy is a core subject that is at the heart of all subjects really um I mean it is the study of knowledge what is knowledge it's the study of everything around us really so it's quite difficult to not have it relate to English especially when personally I think English is so important in understanding the world around us it is essentially how do we capture the life we're living currently um into words and into narratives that can go beyond our time and I think philosophy is so important in that because you know Philosophy influences so many different things, the way you look at life, the way you look at romance, at death, at ethics, at morals, and ultimately those are massive themes within literature, so I think they're inherently linked. Yeah, for sure, and I agree, because lots of themes, you see them in philosophy, and then you just think they're there, but then once you start exploring, you see them in other subjects, and because both are quite similar to each other... In English, it's quite easier to see those themes, mm. but or maybe it's not as easy. But then once you see them, you're like, oh my goodness, they're there. They've always yeah, been there. Yeah, I mean, there. you have the you know the beautiful poetry and the prose and the metaphors that kind of cover up the bigger picture of philosophy of what is life, what is love, what is death. You know, why does this tragedy affect the reader so much? Because of morals, because of empathy, because what is that to us as a human race and that is essentially what philosophy is. So, yeah. I yeah. mean, I think that was put amazingly. <laughs> and you said you mentioned ideas. And before this, when we were discussing, you mentioned kind of platonic ideas and how mm. philosophy kind of relates to the English mm. version of ideas. So what was it you were really kind of interested in talking <laughs> about that? Well, I was essentially, I was listening to this podcast the, with the math session And you brought up the world of ideas. And I was thinking, that's a really interesting link to be made. And I kind of just had this, like, revelation. I was like, well, how does that link to English? Um, And so, you know, if you've listened to the previous episode, you'll know. But I'll recap really quickly. Um, In Plato's world of ideas, you have this world of ideas that is perfect, immutable, unchangeable, um, metaphysical, purest form of the ideal of everything. And then when it manifests in the physical world, it becomes tainted and tarnished and marred a bit and it becomes physical, changeable, shadows of that perfect world. And you could argue that English is the same, has a similar kind of relationship in the sense that an author, a writer will have an idea of a plot of a character, exactly what a character looked like, how they react. Um, These sort of tiny nuances within a character or within a story or within a feeling and emotion that they wish to convey and when they begin to convey this idea it becomes maybe not marred but altered by the language we have um because sometimes you know language could be seen as some shadowy compensation for this world of ideas that we can't reach because it is 
beyond our understanding or grasp. So it's an interesting way or parallel to look at how literature and writing can be seen as this shadowy form in comparison to the ideal world. Yeah, I think that's so interesting because even when I'm reading a book, I Mm. think I always have my own image and I kind of have my own picture of what the characters do and kind of what the message is. And then I know that even if I'm talking, I'm discussing a book in class, I understand that the people who read it, each one saw the characters Mm. in a different way. They imagined them, the story. It could have been objectively the same, but the little pieces weren't. And it's the theme of language where you can't describe to people what it is, how you read the story, other Mm. than saying, you know, oh, the theme of love was present in it. But I can't pass on my own feeling of love. Yeah, the way you react is entirely, Mm -hmm. you know, subject to you. Because it is you that is reading, interpreting the text, and you're bringing your past experiences of love to that reading of that great tragic love story. Exactly. And even if, to myself, I know how I feel, Mm. even if I try to discuss it with language, or if you try to use the words, we still can't convey that exact same feeling. Yeah, it's the same when you're also writing. I mean, I'm I'm not going to call myself a poet here, but, you know, (laughs) I have tried writing before, and it is... You know, I've got this emotion that I know because I've experienced it, how I want it to come across. And the second I try putting pen to paper, that feeling is sort of obscured when I try and get it out. It becomes shadowy and difficult to grasp and to really sort of cement that in language. And it is a struggle that writers have all the time. And also within philosophy, how do you, if you have an idea, I mean, this is something that I should, because I also study philosophy and I struggle in my essays when I've got a grasp of something or an understanding of a philosophical concept, trying to convey that through language is always so difficult because there's so many different interpretations and you can't account for how every individual will read what you've just written. Mm -hmm. And it is a massive task for the creator, the author, the writer. Yeah. You're kind of almost off topic, but not really. (laughs) Do you think that writers can get... How close do you think writers get to conveying their feelings do you think each author is basically on the same as if there's kind of a border that each one stands along or does each writer have their own border that they get as close as possible and do you think that that's what writers are always aware of saying you know I'm Mm -hmm. writing this but no one will exactly always know what I had in mind and do you think that some people can still be great writers or for some people it can be you know what's the point if no one will ever really understand? Mm, I mean, that's a really, really challenging and broad question. It is very, I don't even know where to start with that (laughs) one. But um, I mean, I guess the question there is, what really is the purpose of literature? Is it for the author to convey an almost objective, you know, idea when it comes to, let's choose an example of uh, death? how they feel about that experience or is it you know um is it for the reader to bring their own experiences to that and decide what that means it is ultimately that relationship between author and intention and reader and what they pick up from it and I think that the best writers out there convey their own ideas of what again sticking to death for some reason I don't know why I chose that topic but um you know writers writing about death for example take Shakespeare and Romeo and Juliet, classic example of literature. Um, Shakespeare's own feelings of, or I guess the feeling that he's trying to convey of, you know, that tragedy and that real moment of um, 
hurt and pain between Romeo and Juliet when they find out that the other is dead, but also how we react to that as an audience, as a reader, as a listener, is just as important, I think, because if you can't, if you manage to convey your idea as a writer of what you wanted, but it feels alien and unfamiliar to the reader or inaccessible, then you failed in conveying your idea. Um, So yeah, I mean, I don't think I even touched on that question that you asked me because it was such a difficult question. Yeah, no, no. But... It's so interesting how you're saying that um, it's how the writer is so good at conveying the feelings because I've read so many books that were about a situation that I've never encountered Mm. before in my life. But when I finished reading, I felt like I was sobbing. I was like, oh my Mm. God, that's... I felt as if I lived through that. And as I think, taking out Eric Maria Remark, for example, with the Three Comrades, my probably one of my favorite books at the end. Nothing in that book I mm. I can, you know, realistically relate yeah. to. But it just affected me to such a level that I did feel like I mm. had lived through that. And language is a really important part, also kind of how you use it. And was it Wittgenstein, I think, one of our favorite mm. philosophers? I do love some Wittgenstein. He is a great guy. Um, what was that quote that you said? The limits of, limits of my language stand for the limits of our world. I yeah. think that was it. So that is that is the quote, yeah. Okay. Um, so that idea essentially, well, that quote essentially argues that um, you can't really have an idea without the language to express it, mm-hmm. um, which is really interesting when you think about it because all of these philosophical ideas of, you know, morals, what is right, what is, you know, what instantly feels right and what instantly feels wrong, you can't have the idea of what is right and what is wrong without having the language of right and wrong, of good and bad. Um, And so it's an interesting relationship between how powerful language is and philosophical concepts, being able to name them. Um, Yeah. I mean, what do you think? Do you agree with that? I I completely agree with that, I think. Mm. I mean, it's hard to disagree with Wittgenstein's (laughs) ideas. They're so kind of right to the point. Um, When you're saying language can show the feeling of what is right and wrong how can it uh do so do you think right because I kind of see it as in um right when you tell a little child um you know stealing is wrong yeah and you kind of say and they say but why you know like well it's wrong Mm. so what is this kind of perhaps innate or a priori feeling that we've got within ourselves that we then use with language that's kind of we're expressing ideas sorry expressing ideas through language Mm. or is can we express it as in physically use language to say why something is right or wrong instead of just trying to put forth an idea that we just feels right or wrong oh i see yeah okay um well that's i mean that is again such a broad and challenging question (laughs) i don't have the answer to it but i can discuss it with you now let's do that um it is interesting to think when you for example take a toy of a child and they go that's not fair you know that's just not fair you're saying why is it not fair you're trying to get them to like articulate why it feels like it's not fair and it is that sort of in the instant it like strikes you within it's just not fair when you see something it gets your blood boiling um and that is sort of a reactive feeling um but ultimately can you tie it down to I suppose language and knowing what that is 
or is it um, is it a preconceived idea that we have that comes from the word fair or is it something that is independent of the word are we tying it down to language mm-hmm. or is it just this almost meta feeling that is as you said innate within us or learned depending on your views but it is interesting to see if we tie language down to ideas or ideas are fundamentally infused with language fabricated together mm-hmm. what do you think Oh, that is a difficult... I just realized how difficult the question <laughs> I brought up. I'm trying question. to answer that myself now, and I'm thinking, er. Um, I think quite a lot of ideas have become quite muddled with language mm. and tied up, and we've kind of lost the true meaning of them because we tried to tie them down to a single word, mm. which may or may not convey an idea how it was originally conveyed. But it also kind of makes me think that we do... Even if we use the same words and same ideas, it can still be interpreted in different ways. Mm. So, right, you said a child, you take away a toy from a child, and he says, that's not fair. Is it? Let's give it, you know, context. A child's being bad, you take their toy away. Mm. One child can go, that's not fair. Mm. And the other can be like, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. And they, right, same situation. One feels that it's unfair. Other one doesn't feel that it's unfair. Mm. So there's definitely, like, subjectivity within Mm. them. Or maybe not necessarily with different feelings about the same situation and that's kind of what I think about tying the language down yeah I mean that's a really interesting parallel to be made with an Orwell essay I can't remember the name of it but he basically argues that at his time of writing that authors have kind of gone a bit downhill and their writing has become worse and worse because they're getting too tied up in all this like heavy and excessive language Mm -hmm. as opposed to just conveying ideas in its simplest purest form so ultimately does language muddy meaning um or does it help convey it in its clearest way is it best to use as many words as possible to describe something to get it as precise as possible or just the simplest less you know over-the-top and superfluous language to just convey an idea. Yeah, because that makes me think of Kant Mm. and how his writings are about as difficult as it gets in philosophy. I mean, I've personally never read one. Neither, I I can't bring myself to try. I tell myself one day I will, Mm. but we don't know if that day will come. (laughs) But even then, lots of really, you know, proclaimed Scott Kantian scholars, mm. even they're saying, this is difficult. Yeah. I don't understand. Or, you know, they mm. may not say, I don't understand this, but they are suggesting that it's difficult. Whereas other philosophers, they give their ideas really straightforward mm. and to the point, like Plato, Descartes, um, Sartre. As clearly and distinctly as clear possible. Di- a little Descartes <laughs> reference, clear and distinct ideas. Mm. For all you philosophy nerds out there, I hope you appreciate <laughs> my joke. <laughs> He's got that idea mm. nailed down. And what was that? And clear and distinct ideas. Yeah. So it's really depending on the author, where it be English literature mm. author, lot philosophical ideas author, and some people do understand them. If you read, you know, Orwell mm. or another, it's a really kind of difficult author. Which a you difficult to author to grasp. My favorite, Virginia Woolf. Virginia Woolf, mm. yeah. Great ideas, great author. Definitely takes me a few times to kind of read through a paragraph. hundred percent. hundred times. I'm reading through it. and then <laughs> I'm still reading it now, even though I've read it like a thousand times and I just won't understand the text. But it's, there is some sort of beauty in that, in, 
in using language as a sort of puzzle piece that you put together to get an idea and having so many different um, readings and so many different interpretations and sort of layers to that story and um, sort of if you imagine it like one big sort of fabric sheet and you have all these different um, strands of fibres that run through it and all these different strands of readings and stuff that you can, um, you know, follow to get to this beautiful piece of tapestry that is a story, a narrative, literature. Yeah. That made me think of, kind of before we get on to the Mm. next bit, is do you think that timing and kind of your age matters when you're reading a book? Because I remember a few years back I um, picked up a book was. I picked up Great Gatsby, mm. read it. I thought, you know, it's a it's a cool book. Good it's a book. cool book. Yeah, nice. Picked it up again, reread it this year because you know it's quite yeah. a short read. And I was completely like, whoa! Yeah, Fitzgerald was onto something. Mm. And that's a beautiful and tragic tale filled with you know the idea of the American dream and mm. how it's such a big idea that's perhaps not talked about enough and mm. can be related to completely different concepts. Whereas you know. Two years ago, I like to think I was the same person, mm. you know, I didn't change that much. But do you think that perhaps time in our lives and our intellectual ability, which does, mm. I reckon, increase with age, do you think that plays a part in how we see novels or texts? Definitely. I mean, I think absolutely. Um, it's the same with philosophy as well, when you, you know your morals change all the time, your views change all the time. It's almost impossible to get one person from the age of 12 who keeps the same ideas, the exact same ideas until the day they die. Mm-hmm. Um, because your experiences fundamentally sort of create what you think. You know, you are what you've experienced. And I think the more you experience with time, because that's how time works, mm-hmm. um, the more you experience with time, the more sort of, I don't know, life you have to look back on to alter the way you read texts. And that's probably why as you have gotten older, experienced more things, gotten a taste of the real world. I say that with like air quotes. Lots of air quotes. Lots of air quotes. Um, That's how your reading of The Great Gatsby has changed. And, you know, I don't think that literature should be inaccessible to certain age groups or... Um, any sort of category of race, gender, class, etc. But I definitely do think that your experiences alter the way you read things. And so time, yes, would change the way that you read a text. And it's the same, as I said before, with philosophy, with morals. I know that my morals have changed from a couple of years ago, and that's because my experiences have also changed and made me think more about... Um, other types of people and how they experience the world and how you know our ethics should reflect that as well so essentially yes yes 100 percent, yes 100 yes um earlier in the podcast you were talking about um Wittgenstein mm. and the limits of my language mm. quote and you mentioned subjectivity along with that yes how kind of do you mind elaborating on that and saying that because subjectivity is quite one of the main ideas mm. in both philosophy and english and do you think that's kind of what the main thing that ties the two subjects together is it just something that happens to be present in both yeah I mean I think I mean firstly I don't think that we should consider them separate subjects I mean aside from the methodology being a bit different um Mm -hmm. I think they are essentially in some sort of symbiotic relation together you can't really separate philosophy from English um 
although sometimes it might be a bit harder to bring yourself to think about philosophical, <laughs> philosophical questions when reading texts. But I do think they are inherently linked. And I do think that um, with all things in life, I mean, this is just my personal view, with all things in life, there is subjectivity to everything. And so in texts, I will... I will obviously read a text very differently to how you will read a text. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that makes the text any less important, any less powerful. It just makes it interesting, way more interesting. I mean, the other day I was reading a poem, an unseen poem, and we were doing it in time condition. And afterwards I spoke to my friend about it. And she picked up on a sort of feminist reading of this poem that I did not even consider looking at at any point. And I started going on about Marxism in the poem. And I think that subjectivity when looking at texts is what makes it so interesting because there are endless ways of reading texts, just as there are endless ways of interpreting the world around us, whether, you know, the mug that is sat in front of me is real or not, whether it, you know, exists outside of me. And that subjectivity is fundamental to literature as well. Yeah. Do you agree? I agree 100% because that subjectivity immediately, the first novel that comes to mind is Anna Karenina. Mm. And I know I talked about it a lot last year. Look, <laughs> here it comes again. Um, what, after I finished reading it, it was kind of this roller coaster mm. of emotions where I kind of went, so where did Tolstoy take us? You know, yeah. I don't want to say back to square one because that was <laughs> a long way to square one. Yeah. But, you know... Um, a very long way to A very long, long way. Uh, 800 pages? Mm. thousand Somewhere along those lines. <laughs> and, you know, for those of you who haven't read Anna Karenina, the brief, brief plot is that um, a Russian, Russian um, uh, aristocratic woman got gets into an affair with another man, and quite a lot of events mm. follow after that, leading to her ultimate death, mm. that many have seen as kind of a out of passion, out of desire. And active, you know, ultimate passion. Active passion, you know. She couldn't be with that man, mm. so she had to take her own life because this passion was too strong. Others read it. For example, myself, I saw it as something incredibly sad and not passionate mm. at all. You know, she her life completely derailed after mm. she began the affair and everything that happened went against her and her um, basic... You know, she lost her friends, her family, her kids at the end of the novel. So definitely, yeah. I didn't see it as a love story mm. at all. There were romantic aspects to it, but not a, ultimately you know, a tragedy. It's ultimately yeah. a tragedy, and I discussed it a lot with my peers, and everyone had a different say. Quite a lot said, you know, it's just about agriculture. <laughs> That's what many of them said. You know, they're because there are quite a lot yeah. of paragraphs. Others said, oh well, you know, moral of the story: don't cheat. Mm. And I said, okay, perhaps that mm. is other ways of interpreting it so that sorry that was a really long segment to answer your question but yeah I think subjectivity is a really really big Mm. idea and is present in philosophy and in English and I think that I completely agree with you it's what makes it exciting it's what makes it beautiful kind of what makes it worth it you know Mm. reading all of that and I think one of my kind of final questions is once you start thinking about philosophical ideas sometimes Mm. you end up seeing them in literature Mm. and do you think that that changes the text if you see a philosophical idea whether it was intended or not and or is it kind of a oh that's cool that's there Mm. but that doesn't really add anything or take away from the text well I think that 
literature and I think what a lot of authors try to do in their writing is capture some sort of idea, some sort of thought, uh, something they want to convey to someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is essentially taking like a little a little picture, a little snapshot of a philosophical idea and trying to convey that. You look at any sort of great novel or text or poem and ultimately at the core of it, and I, this is something that one of my English teacher says, at the core of it, all literature is just about sex and death. Mm-hmm. And that is something that is very, very deeply philosophical. What is desire? Why are we attracted to certain things? What is, you know, the human condition to be attracted to certain things, to not be, to be repulsed by certain things, to find yourself in this sort of existential angst all the time? Um, and also death. Why do we fear the end of things? What is the end of things? What does that mean to us? What is, you know, why are we here if we're just inevitably going to die? And how did we come here? And ultimately, you know, this is quite reductive, but sex and death in literature is at the core of all texts. I guarantee you, if you read a text, you'll somehow boil it down to either one of those. And part of philosophy is concerned with that as well. So um, I've kind of forgotten your initial question, but I feel like I'm kind of just rambling on about it in some way. No, that's fine. I think you did answer it because... I definitely agree. Ever since I started learning about philosophy and I started noticing these little Mm. philosophical ideas, and I think that's sometimes I was, oh, that's really cool, Mm. but I don't think that's what the author intended. But it's still such a cool way to kind of, Mm. I don't want to seem, you know, too academic, but it's a cool thing to exercise your (laughs) mind like that. Right? To think, oh, that's such a cool connection and sharing it with other people. And you can add that. I think that's so important for school. If you're in English class and you're writing an essay and you're, I did that in Mm. my. Uh, we had a creative writing about uh, describe write a paragraph about a character, mm. and I used platonic ideas, mm. which my teacher was like, "That's so cool, you know, philosophy." Yeah. And I think that's so many people can do that if you have, you know, just Plato's world of ideas. You connect that to an English book that can take Definitely. your skills and writing about it to a whole new level. I mean, philosophy. When I write my English essays, is like it's such a special tool that I like to whip out and. Um, a couple months ago we were studying Blindness by Jose Saramago, definitely recommend. And it is ultimately an allegory for the failures of late stage capitalism, but it does also look at the human condition and human nature. And I used a Hobbesian lens Mm -hmm. to look at the descent into man's natural state. Again, I do that with air quotes, because Hobbes argues that in man's natural state, we are very selfish, very we find ourselves in chaos all the time. And um, that was such an interesting perspective to use to look at the text and say, well, maybe he's arguing for a Hobbesian sort of model of man, because as we see in the text, they do descend into chaos. And that is a very selfish and inherently egotistical reaction that the characters have in the book. So philosophy, I use it all the time in my essays to support texts, because you know, I've said it a million times throughout this podcast, they are inherently linked. And to not view it as that is, in my own opinion, a mistake. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was really, really kind of a great boil down of this entire episode and main theme. So thank you so much. I think that's it for time today. But thank thank you you so much for coming on. Yeah, it's great having you here.